right. Welcome to episode uh, 19 of the Rig Podcast. Uh, today we're going to be hopefully finishing up. There's just so much to, material to go over, but we're going to hopefully finish up on the uh, Hinton Lab um, case uh, investigation and also chemist interviews. So um, last time, so I, I just before getting prepped for this episode, I went through um, some of the other materials that I had gathered for previous episodes and I found something that was interesting that um, I had just brought up to the guys before we started recording about um, Annie Dukin and uh, what happened after the June breach. Apparently her files were reviewed um, post the June breach in June, 2011 by Peter Pirro. He checked back over two years worth of QC runs on the GCMS and found nothing wrong. That's what he told investigators. He found nothing wrong. But then Charles Salemi told investigators uh, that from that from that review, that Dukin did not put certain required information on her powder sheets, and he, you know, basically scolded her for that, and that he learned that there were there was more information that she was emitting from the powder sheets after the ninety sample incident. And Piro speculated with regards to Dukin's dry labbing that maybe she was using the GCMS as a quote screening test. So um, as we talked about before, um, one reason why I found this to be very interesting is our own review of uh, Ferrick's lab packets um, from back when she worked at the Hinton lab showed that she was not filling out powder sheets. And it's interesting that the lab supervisor and also, you know, it's not, it's not just in this one interview, but multiple other chemists told the inspector general's office that when um, we received discovery requests after Dukin was benched, we, we kept on finding all of these cases where she was the primary chemist, there was no powder sheet. And as a result, we couldn't show that she had done anything, right? So, it's, as you said, uh, you know, previously in this industry, if you don't document something, it didn't happen. Right. Exactly. Because you can't prove that you did anything. There has to be a written record of it or else you don't know what happened, who did what, who signed for what, who tested what and how they tested it. You have to know all those things. Ilias, what are your thoughts? Well, I'm, 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 for me, the starting point is always the investigation, right? Because you don't know what happened. You, someone uh, usually looks back first. And then, then you start wondering, well, what was wrong with that investigation? So here you have a situation where you know that Annie Dukin has done something wrong. Um, Peter Pirro takes it upon himself to do uh, what someone claims is two years worth of review. Um, that raises a lot of questions for me, additional to the, you know, how come he didn't notice missing powder sheets? Um, how come he didn't find cases that were later immediately discovered when there was sort of independent review, uh, where in the case, for example, in the case of my client who would have fallen within a, uh, a, at least the two calendar year uh, look back, um, there were multiple runs. Uh, and, uh, and of differing results. So if someone went back and did a quote, you know, technical review and they found multiple runs uh, uh, with inconsistent results, uh, which I believe happened in, in more than one case in that period, um, then that tells me that either there was no review, so someone's lying, 
or the review was done to protect her and it was not uh, um, uh, impartial, or it was a matter of lab policy that you were permitted, which I think the OIG sort of found that you were permitted to do multiple runs and get inconsistent results, uh, uh, which flies in the face of their sole bad actor uh, theory that everybody in the lab was doing that. So to me, I sort of wonder, well, why was there no review or discipline of what happened based on that two year look back? Right. Because it seems like if, if, if you get in trouble for doing something and someone says, I'll investigate, and then they do. Um, so let, so continuing on with uh, Betsy O'Brien, since Dukin's departure from the lab, she said, obviously, that she had no conversation. And um, she said that Annie was going through personal problems, then court, and Melendez Diaz was tough at first on her. In 2009, she had a, well, I don't want to say what, what happened. Um, but she had a personal problem and was going through a lot of personal issues. And perhaps she was trying to be important by being the quote, go-to person. And O'Brien stated that she believes that on June 14th, 2011, Dukin wanted the Quincy Police Department box of samples to analyze. She got along good with the Norfolk DAs and police officers. <laughs> That's where Papa Christos was from. Exactly. And, um, and the other one there that absolutely Deb. loved her, Deb Payton. Payton. Yep. Who's now dead curly and still works there. The Quincy box uh, was not next, was not next in sequence. And Dukin had asked about the Quincy box of samples since Melendez Diaz. And in cases of rush requests, there were a lot of times samples were pulled out of order when samples from the June 2011 incident were returned by Dukin, she had the box that the samples were stored in when they were in the safe. This was unusual as evidence officers don't usually give the box with the samples. The box was seen when Dukin returned the samples to Betsy. What's weird is it's not like 90 samples, right? So I can understand a DA calls them up and says, this is going to trial. Um, you know, you tested three out of the four evidence samples involved in this case. It happens that the last one was under a co-defendant's name. Can you please process that? But that's, that's like, understand it. It's totally different when you take out 90 samples, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, 90 samples is a very aggressive amount of samples. That's, <laughs> that's a ton. And, and, but why, again, why is she at, why does she care? Why does she care about Quincy PD? Why does she care about Norfolk County DAs? They just said it right there. She got along good with them. They were asking her for favors. So she, this is what drives me crazy about this case, guys. She was doing them favors. She thought she was doing the right thing because the police were asking for her to do this. And so she does it. She does what the police say. She does a good job for the police. And what does she get for it? Literally two and a half years in jail. Well, why, why, why are prosecutors or police departments asking her to do anything? Right. Right. I mean, this is like, um, you know, if you uh, order birthday cakes from a bakery calling, you don't care who bakes the cake. Right. But instead, you're going to call and say, I want, you know, Mitch to bake this cake for me. Why? I mean, that's, you know, th there's uh, whatever the answer to that question is, it's got to be something uh, that is not disclosed to uh, defense attorneys. 
uh, and likely imp is improper. Well, dude, we've seen it. She writes the questions that work in to to ask her in court. She writes her own testimony down and gives it to the DAs. She studies what works and what doesn't work, i.e. what gets convictions and what doesn't. She writes down those questions that, you know, jurors want to hear and judges want to hear. And then she gives them to DAs and is like, ask me this on stand. These are effective and avoid questions about accreditation. Avoid, right. like she, she's trying to help them to win and they know it. So and of course they want her to work on their case because they know she wants them to win. And there's, a, there's another issue too. And, and I'm, I'm referring now to a, a, a chart that uh, w, I believe WBUR put together. And I think it was just Annie Duke and I could screen share it if you guys wanted, but it, it showed that Melendez Diaz had the opposite effect that everyone's saying, right? Everyone's saying, oh, Annie Dukin was really sort of beset by, uh, you know, the challenges of, of um, Melendez Diaz, but the data shows the opposite. The data showed that she was actually getting slower before Melendez Diaz, and Melendez Diaz was like a kick in the backside that somehow made her faster. Yeah. And well, that, that's, that's a very interesting thing. So meaning, that maybe we're, everyone's looking at this wrong. Maybe Annie Dukin was the solution, the, 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 law, the law enforcement community's solution to Melendez Diaz, which is we don't really have time to test the samples. So why don't we just let Annie Dukin do whatever mi miracle she does uh, that gets us a, a stack of positive results. And that to me should have been the, the subject of the investigation. Right. And uh, that's exactly it, Ilias. And you know what? I can answer that question. I, I have seen the day Melendez Diaz came down, Papa Christos, George Norfolk County, former Norfolk County DA, pa George Papa Christos, emailed Annie Dukin and, and said, I don't know why the Supreme Court of the United States wants drug dealers walking around on our streets making us less safe. And Annie Dukin said, Boy, I never thought of it that way. She literally responded, I never thought of it that way. That set this whole thing in motion. She, she was then, oh my God, I have to protect the, you know, the people of this state against these crazy judges that are letting drug dealers out. I have to convict these people. That to me makes a lot of sense. I don't know that for a fact, but I know for a fact that she said that. And I know for a fact that George said that. George also said that judges were, you know, living in Cambridge and didn't know what they had, you know, what, what the DAs were dealing with. They're making their decisions from the people's Republic of Cambridge. And they <laughs> like, I have that email. I'll post these to Twitter for this episode. It's, and he's now a defense attorney. It's crazy. Who's threatened to sue me, by the way. So if I get sued, Ilias, I'm going to be calling you just FYI. <laughs> well, he, he, he uh, well, who knows, but um, uh, uh, threats of, 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 of lawsuits uh, usually right. give way to a reality that that opens you up to discovery. Right. Uh, <laughs> and so uh, I guess we'll just await the, the papers. <laughs> and I will tell him about this episode because I would love to hear from him. I would love, I would love to go over those because I went to his office and I interviewed him and he said that, you know, well, he said a lot of stuff, but basically he was like, this was just normal chatter, et cetera, which is the same thing that I went to Norfolk County and asked them about this. And their press agent told me the same thing. This was normal chatter. And I'm like, really? 
it's normal for your DAs to say that they have a personal vendetta against a defendant to a chemist who's testing their evidence. And uh, I mean, was- like it's 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 okay to speak to an expert that you're going to call about like what they did in the case and what the lab protocols are. It's a different thing when you're emailing back and forth, you know, <laughs> saying that the judges are from the People's Republic of Cambridge, and uh... <laughs> <laughs> right. And that they took a shot or did something against a cop and that they're a dangerous guy. Like uh, uh, Deb Curley on a number of emails said, these are dangerous people. And there's a reason that the state police are currently withholding 300 emails from me that I had in a FOIA that the secretary of state's office had ruled in my favor that I should get, but they're uh, violating the public records law to keep the, and these are from, these are after Dukin was convicted. These are after Dukin left the office. These are with all state police chemists. They're refusing to give me her emails for a reason because we've seen how she talks. We've seen how she acts. And we know that this behavior has not changed because she was not ever mentioned anywhere besides on this podcast. And also in a couple Globe articles. The Globe, the Globe did have some stuff back in 2012 on her. Um, so it brought... So O'Brien advised that Dukin had no training in operating uh, computer systems that assign case logs, et cetera. That was a lie. Dukin absolutely had access. And I I mean, she may not have had training, but she knew how to operate Fox Pro for sure and was caught a number of times using Fox Pro. At one time, Peter Prio uh, told Betsy O'Brien that Dukin had put her initials, quote, where they shouldn't have. And O'Brien does not recall what document and O'Brien looked at Dukin's CV and she all she checked her claim on education when she first went to work. Dukin's early CV claimed that a master's was in progress. And then in 2011 and 2012, her CV had a master's designation. And this was one of the things that they convicted Dukin of, uh, falsifying her CV. And O'Brien believes around June of 2010, she confronted Dukin about the master's on her CV. According to O'Brien, Dukin subsequently took the master's degree off, but at times uh, sent her a CV out with a master's degree on it. That just blows my mind. Right? Like if, if you're in a law firm and you've got a paralegal, right, who's doing a pretty good job turning out stuff uh, and they tell you, you know, I'm going to Suffolk Law Night School, and uh, you know, years later they say, "Oh, I graduated. I've got a JD, and now I can take cases." And they start going into court and taking cases. And your firm later learns that he didn't actually go to night school. Like, <laughs> how is it that the the person wasn't fired immediately? Right. Right. Well, can I? Can I just speak to that? Because uh, this is a, 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 a true story. Um, we had uh, at one of my old firms, somebody who um, represented, held himself out to be a Harvard, uh, I believe 2L, who was summering at, um, at a prestigious law firm. Uh, and I had friends at that law firm who had never heard of him. So that kind of raised an eyebrow. <laughs> uh, and it turned out that he, he had taken a chemistry class at Harvard uh, but he was not enrolled in law school. He was enrolled in Suffolk Knight as a 1L. And so he was going to law school, but that's just not Harvard and not in the second year. 
and not summering at a prestigious firm. Uh, he was fired faster than you could send an email. Uh, and there was also a notification to uh, the bars, uh, state bar uh, organizations for both uh, Massachusetts and his home state. Um, and uh, also to, I, I, I don't remember, but I think maybe the schools were notified as well. Uh, and that was all done with lightning speed because you have to do it. So this idea that, oh, I saw something about a master's degree that you don't have. And, you know, just as long as you just don't keep doing it, except for once in a while, that's not the, an appropriate reaction. Dude, was, was she not concerned that she was testifying in court that she had a master's degree falsely? Like and then what I would do is I would say, okay, everybody show me your resume. And then you'd find out that actually somebody else was doing that, uh, perhaps, uh, Ms. Corbett? Like Kate, yeah. Kate Corbett? <laughs> and so, right. And so, so now you- Sociology degree instead of a chemistry degree? <laughs> And, and, and there was no, there appears to have been no fallout. And those are the only two we know about. I mean, how do we know, has anyone gone through everyone else's resume? Well, I mean, like the Kate Corbett thing came up because the state police, after all this fallout, realized they had to double check everyone's resumes and credentials, but uh, they didn't check the people who were in and out of the lab before that, right? So it's not like the same 10 people worked at the lab that, you know, entire decade plus, uh, people started and left there and they never, you know, checked their credentials. It's, it's unbelievable. It's true. Like to, to know for over two years that she was like off and on lying. And why would like, wouldn't Betsy see that and be like, why the fuck is she doing? Why is she doing that? Didn't they have like a master's degree party for Annie Dukin? I think I did hear that at one point. <laughs> So where, what was Betsy O'Brien doing at that party? She was like, like I drinking, disagree I'm, with I'm the, assuming. I, she was like, I'll wait for my piece of cake, but I disagree with the theme of this party. <laughs> in spring, in spring of 2011, she had a real problem with that party, Ilias. <laughs> uh, so... Uh, so here, here's what she told the investigators from the OIG, Betsy. Uh, although there was no pressure to get more cases done, Betsy did worry about the overload of the safe and the ever-increasing backlog of cases. Um, she had heard and never saw in 2011 that Dukin had many uncovered test tubes or vials, but she knew that if Salemi was informed, he would take care of it. Good call. Betsy had many other issues as supervisor of the evidence room which, uh, with which to contend. So I guess that was not a big issue that she needed to look into. No one raised concerns to Betsy that Dukin was not supervised. Occasionally, Betsy emailed Sonia Frock in the Amherst laboratory. Sonia Frock was a, quote, hard worker. Did it say hard worker or hard user? And Betsy... <laughs> never saw a follow-up report from the um, DPH regarding their investigation of the drug lab. With tears, here it goes again, they're crying again. With tears, Betsy says, we all work so hard. Many chemists are still testifying. We've all been burned by the Mass State Police reports being made public. <laughs> That's the, that, right. That's the, the, the real tragedy, right? Yeah, that it was made public. Not that, you know, 
they knew for years that she personally knew for years that Annie Dukin was lying on the stand and did nothing about it. Besides say, hey, you might want to change that. Oh, I see you doing it again. Meh. Oh, well, let's go to the party. And <laughs> so I'm going to go over Haves here. Haves Lashie. Let me, let, let me just yeah. pause for one second. Like lying about a master's degree in front of a jury is not some small thing, right? Aside from the perjury, you know, like the, the notion that this is an expert is really solidified by the fact that they're claiming they have those credentials and that's going to make a difference, especially if, you know, the defense attorney found some problem in the case, right? And said like, oh, you know, this protocol, uh, it seems like you didn't follow it or this paperwork is missing. Well, if the person has a graduate degree, the jury might say, the lawyer doesn't know what he's talking about. This person's an expert. Really, this person just had like a college degree. This is a college student who got out and uh, is running these tests with, uh, you know, no background in it. Well, there's there's actually there's three things going on here. And, and I'll, I'll say this as, as a civil attorney, when you call an expert, you very often have an outline with three Roman numeral sections. Section one, who is this person? and you go through their qualifications. Section two, tell me about your methodology, um, which in, in a state a drug lab would be uh, talking about swig drug. And then three is tell me about this sample and the testing that you did. So we now have a situation where Roman numeral one was a lie, Roman numeral two was a lie, and the jury is now being an, gonna be asked, do you believe this person about Roman numeral three? Well, if they've lied about one and two, they don't really get to three. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I can't believe that the, the, the lying on a resume was not a, uh, a, a, a thunderbolt um, uh, 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 that caused an immediate investigation and, and, and yeah. you know, recrimination in that lab. Uh, like also the paperwork for Roman numeral three is missing. Right. <laughs> and, and by the way, she also forged her initial, she also forged other chemists initials on all of her paperwork too. Like th there's, and they all knew this was like either none of them talked, which I find to be completely impossible in a, in a lab of like 20 people. Or, 12 people. 12 people. Or like they, I mean, I, I don't want to insult people's intelligence, but how do you not see that if they're forging their resume, they're forging initials on paperwork, they're not filling out paperwork, they they're have open samples all over their, their lab bench, they're doing all these things, and no one's like, hmm, you know, maybe we should stop her. Maybe we should, like, maybe Annie's not working out. Instead, they're like, oh, my God, she's amazing. I, I can't, it's, anyways, Haves uh, Leishi, L, is that L-L-E-S-H-I, um, she worked with Annie. Annie trained her. So Annie Dukin trained Haves, and Haves didn't think anything was wrong until Annie Dukin was in trouble after the June 2011 incident. Looking back, she never recalls seeing Annie Dukin do a quality control balance check on the scale at her bench. But other than that, absolutely nothing was wrong. Annie, Annie Dukin never told Haves to do a QC balance check, and she was her trainer. Again, none of Haves's uh, cases have ever been tossed. Haves is not sure if Annie Dukin did the check or not, but she never saw her actually do a balance check of the scale. I'm thinking she probably didn't. Haves Leishi uh, stated that she would work on samples and Annie Dukin was supposed to stay with her 
as any as Haves was in training. Dukin would leave Haves alone, and Haves did samples on her own. Dukin was supposed to transfer Haves's powder sheet uh, notes to reflect that Dukin was the chemist of record, uh, and Dukin did not transfer the powder sheets sheet notes, which meant that Haves was the analyzing chemist, even though she was only in training. Dukin was the chemist on the cert, but Haves was on the powder sheet. Uh, Dukin did not make the changes to the powder sheet that would be properly ref reflected uh, the roles and responsibilities of the chemist in training and the certified chemist. So they got training trainees doing their tests. I'm sure that never, I'm, I'm sure they, they testified to that in court though, right? This was actually a trainee who was in training that did this test. The, we were never able to figure out which cases uh, the trainees were working on because there's not enough of a paper trail. Vest stated that she is unsure of how many samples uh, that were done like that during the period she was in training from April 1st to June 16th of 2011. Haves was in training when she did Annie Dukin's cases and she had not taken the exam yet. And then according to Haves, Dukin was always trying to please people. ADAs, cops, bosses, directors, Haves was uh, certified as a chemist in June of 2011. And Haves tried to work at Annie Dukin's pace, but Chuck Salemi and Peter Pirro told her to, quote, slow down. You can't work like her. It is against protocol. <laughs> what the? What? <laughs> Why do you have someone in your lab that you know is working against protocol? And then having that person train people. <laughs> Haves and Annie Dukin were close socially. They sometimes went out for drinks after work. When Dukin was taken off of samples, she told Haves that she was writing protocols. Then Annie was placed on administrative leave. Uh, Haves stated that Annie texted her and told her to, quote, erase all of Annie's texts, emails, and, her, and for her to not call. <laughs> You know, when I'm at work and someone tells me, dude, erase all of our texts between each other and all of our emails, I, I will like instantly think, oh, this is totally on the up and up. I have no problem with this. Right. Well, like if that's introduced in a case, you could get an, a jury instruction about consciousness of guilt, right? Yeah. Well, that's also it was I, wrong. I mean, Chris, I, I'm not uh, a practitioner in, in the field of criminal law, but isn't destruction of evidence? Right. <laughs> Spoilation of evidence, yep. Right. Annie told Haves she didn't want uh, her to get into any trouble. Haves stated that she believes Annie, okay, that's where Annie lived. And in her opinion, that Annie was always rushing. Haves stated that she recalls that in the lab, Annie put a piece of brown paper, uh, brown lab paper, so that uh, Della Fresca couldn't see her. Annie hung the lab paper between her bench and Della's bench. Haves recalls asking Annie to take the brown paper down uh, when renovations were occurring in the office. According to Haves, Annie said that Della and Annie should be separate and not <laughs> see what each other were doing. 
So like that contradicts some of the other uh, statements that we've received, because at one time there was an innocent explanation for that, uh, you know, brown construction paper, whatever it was, it was for like acid splatter or something like that. But now we have another chemist saying it was because those chemists hated each other and did not want to see what they were working on and did not want to interact. Right. And we'll, when we get to Della, uh, she said that that piece of paper was put by up by the other chemist from the, the Annie, who I call the Annie Dukin of the nineties. I, I can't recall her name right off the top. Sandra Lipschitz. Yeah. Yes. Her, she, Sandra put that up and do, and she ha just happened to leave right when Dukin first started. So maybe she, maybe this all started in the nineties with Sandra and it was passed to Annie and Annie just took it to the next level. But Sandra did like, I think one year she did seven or 8,000 samples like Dukin numbers. And none of that has ever come to light ever. So Annie told Havest that, um, so Havest stated that when it came to cocaine crystal slides, the way Annie did the crystals, Havest was unable to replicate Annie's results. Annie stated, uh, her vest stated that Annie got crystals, re quote, really quickly. <laughs> oh, her vest. It's like a chemical reaction. It's yeah. not like it happens really quickly or really slowly. It just like takes the time that it takes because it's a chemical reaction. Yes. Right? <laughs> There's nothing you can do to speed it up. Havest did not get them as quickly as Dukin, and she wasn't 100% sure why. I can tell you why. I mean, that's like saying the, the fucking tests. That's like saying the chemical reagent didn't get the reaction uh, quickly enough when used by one person instead of another. Yeah, this is uh, this is, reminds me of that scene from My Cousin Vinny, where the the guy who was making grits uh, mm -hmm. testifies about exactly. the, the time that elapsed. Instant grits. Seeing the people enter and leave the sack of suds, and and he said, "Well, I thought you said that you boiled the grits," and he's like, "At the end." He says, oh, I guess I'm a fast cook. Um, <laughs> well, you know, you, you can't, you, right, you can't accelerate that. But, you know, that bleeds back into this issue that we haven't really drilled down on, which is that cocaine requires that you actually form uh, uh, and observe uh, uh, the, the crystals. Um, and if you're dry labbing, you're not doing that. And I think there's testimony that people rarely saw her in front of her mic microscope. Uh, there's also testimony that she might not have had enough slide uh, uh, slides in her out tray, uh, out bin to, to support the number of uh, 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 slides she was supposedly examining. And then there's the um, statement that I believe, um, and I'm not going to, I'm not sure how she pronounced it, but Miss Desjardins or Desjardins yep. uh, said that that uh, on occasion she would not get uh, uh, crystals she'd still send it to the mass spec department. And then if they got cocaine, she would go back and quote, work up the crystals and get them. And how do you, you do know, that? And I don't, there was never an investigation of that. I mean, again, crystals are not magic. Okay. You can't do them faster and you can't just do them better. They happen or they don't happen. Right. And so that to me is, uh, you know, I don't know what was going on with respect to cocaine, but what I'm surmising is that there might not have been any uh, actual 
as far as the statute is concerned, because again, this is a matter of statute, right? That you need to see those crystals um, um, to make sure that it's the right type of, uh, 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 of substance. I, my suspicion is that they never actually did that for any cocaine case. And, and this is a tangent, but I, I'm reminded of the Salt Bay meme where he just sprinkles uh, all of that onto uh, whatever food he's cooking. And I just imagine the chemist going, no. <laughs> Voila. Or like having, you know, those magic sets that I got for my kid where it's like, they switch out the crystal slides and they're like, okay, here's one slide. And then woof, here's, here's another, I got the crystals. Right. So Havest stated that when Annie would get the crystals quickly, Annie would not let Havest look at the crystals under the microscope. <laughs> I mean, come right. on, this is like second grade crap. Although on the occasions when Dukin would let Havest look at the crystals under the microscope, Jeez, it would take Dukin <laughs> a much longer time to develop the crystals. That is so weird. Right. That, that's so weird. And that's like when I ask my kids uh, to wash their hands, sometimes they disappear and they come back in about 10 seconds. But if I actually watch them wash their hands, it seems to take like two minutes. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's bizarre. You never believe me, dad. <laughs> According to Vess, these were the only uh, crystal slides she would be allowed to look at. And Havest further recalled that when Annie did the crystals, herself she would look at them for one second and then throw the slide away annie told Havest that she had access to the safe she said betsy chuck and i have access to the safe she told she also told Havest that betsy chuck and i can close the lab according to Havest, the senior chemist was supposed to open the lab and close the lab either a chemist one or a chemist two was not supposed to close the lab dukin was a chemist too Havest stated that Annie was able to open and close the lab as a chemist too. According to Havest, Annie had a lot of privileges. Havest thought it was because she was so productive. She recalled that Peter Pirro was against Annie having her run of the place. Havest believes that Annie knew the code to the evidence safe. Annie told Havest that she had the code to the safe, but she did not tell her who gave her the code. Annie was allowed to look up numbers and to Havest's knowledge, only evidence officers were allowed to look up numbers. Annie told Havest that she was trained to receive evidence, but it was Havest's understanding that Annie was only a chemist and should have not been allowed to receive evidence. Annie told Havest that Annie did uh, training and had access to grants that other people in the lab didn't have access to. Uh, 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 a ham-fisted job. I think there should be some repercussions for that. So it seems like the the, the number of uh, uh, questionable acts keep uh, compounding, and yet everybody pretends that there was only ever one issue, which was did Annie Duke can take a few samples out of the evidence room without properly uh, getting them initialed. Um, when reality is there should have been lots of investigations of lots of people for lots of things, uh, yeah. and it just doesn't seem to have happened. And even the and June also, investigation, oh, I'm sorry, Chris, even June, the, the June investigation was completely narrow in scope. They did not like go back and, and really see what else she was doing or even consider the impact of what she did. They, they, they just thought it was a paperwork thing and, you know, didn't even contact the potential, you know, the, the, uh, the police departments and whoever owned those samples, they didn't even tell them what was wrong until there was something wrong until like December and it happened in June. Go ahead, Chris, sorry. 
Yeah, I was just going to say, it's not just uh, Ilias's client. If you go to the OIG supplemental report, they themselves, you know, even though I have problems with the number of samples that they tested or retested in their methodology, they found, you know, half a dozen or more cases from 2009, 2010, 2011 that had problems with GCMS testing. Now, not all of those involved any Dukin, but uh, a good number of them did. So again, uh, goes to show that whatever Peter Piero did uh, wasn't satisfactory, even to the OIG standards. Right. For example, Jeffrey Banks, um, his uh, his uh, sample, I believe, was from March of 2011. So that's only looking two months back. Um, and so, it, you know, if if the lab can't find figure this stuff out on its own, why are they investigating themselves? Right. Yeah. Clearly, I mean, that this to is me screaming is sort for of a, a third party. Like right. That's sort of a red flag in and of itself. If you can't investigate yourself, then why why even bother? Well, they don't even have a QA department. That's what the function of a QA department is, is to supposedly, I mean, but then even a QA department can be corrupted and, um, you know, be on board with what goes on if it's like a close-knit group of people and they all know each other. But right. um, but QA's function is supposed to be independent of the lab operations and checking and viewing to make sure that everything is going um, as it is supposed to go. Now, right. uh, so, so Michael- For example, Lawler, okay. sorry, go ahead. No, no, you go. So Michael Lawler, uh, he became concerned about Dukin's high production numbers in spring of 2011. And he thought they were, quote, extraordinary and, quote, could not fathom them. Uh, Lawler could move, he said he could move 15 to 25 cases on an overtime day. These would be days with no interruptions. And using these numbers as a starting point and under a very best case scenario, the most Andy Dukin could do in a month was 400. 400. She did a thousand in one month. Okay, like, and it's not just like the, the years that she admitted to dry labbing. It's the entire time she was there. Yeah. Going back to the year she was almost the month that she was hired. Every month was above 400. Every, like 400, that's a joke. And then they said not the 500 reported on a monthly case statistics report that appeared in the laboratory in 2011. A best case scenario might involve either doing only marijuana cases or generating certificates with, where no analysis was performed except for the taking of a weight. The, the latter was done to accommodate police departments who could not dispose of samples without a certificate. Lawler tried to note the number of microscope slides Dukin used and even marked the reagent bottle she used uh, for color tests to determine if indeed she was performing the tests. His, in, so he did an informal investigation just because he's like, this is total bullshit. His impression was uh, that the number of slides in her uh, slide disposal container and the volume of reagent did not change with time. He, he did not document his observations. Lawler felt that he had no influence uh, on the drug lab policy. And he went to the union lawyers about this and was told to be careful. They basically threatened him. I've seen that, that, that uh, thing. They're like, basically, shut up. Don't, don't say a word about a young woman's career. They didn't want him to ruin her career. And then he went to Salemi with his concerns about Dukin possibly dry labbing. And so this contradicts Salemi, Salemi's testimony to the state police where he's like, yeah, no one really brought anything up. 
No one remember he said he told the state police no one brought like at what point do people get in trouble for lying to investigators here? Right. Can I just make a, a couple of observations? And this yeah. is the, the type of thing that drives me nuts. So uh, here we're supposed to believe Mr. Lawler by when he said he was very concerned about suddenly in the spring, which is really interesting that everybody suddenly discovers um, sort of like the, the gambling in Casablanca. They discovered that Annie Dukin was doing bad stuff in spring of 2011 when it was sort of convenient to suddenly admit that, that you knew something. Um, but yet that was not her most productive year. Right. You know, 2010 was far more productive for Annie Dukin. Yeah. So Lawler didn't notice anything wrong in 2010, her most productive year, I believe. Uh, um, I think she had more production uh, pre- no, You're right, 2005 was more, uh, her two most productive years were 2005 and 2010. And, and somewhere think in the about middle. that. The, uh, 2010 is post Melendez Diaz, so she's going to court every day. Right, so that's, that is, if, if you want to use the word unfathomable, I would say all of 2010 is unfathomable. Um, and yet Lawler didn't notice anything. Now, was he, I don't know, was he out of the office the whole, the whole year? I, I have no idea, but suddenly everyone's noticing stuff. Uh, people are saying, hey, wait a minute, she's forging my initials in 2011. This was going on probably well before. So uh, why, where were the collective heads, the ostrich heads um, for the previous uh, years? Uh, you know, to me, it seems like um, everybody was looking the other way. Uh, and that's, I think, the only reasonable conclusion right. uh, that one could draw. Or maybe, I mean, and maybe people were getting pissed off about it and not wanting to say anything, not wanting to rock the boat, because Duke, Dukin was clearly well-liked there. Um, a lot of the, from what I gather, pretty much everyone besides Lawler liked her. Um, and, but they also thought she was kind of a snob and, and you know, putting on airs and self-important. Uh, but, but still you had to your point, like, where was this? She's been doing it the whole time. If 400 is the benchmark, then she never ever went under 400 in a month. Right. So and one other observation, uh, Salemi claims that he, for some period of time would take random samples and test them, um, as a, as a, uh, like retest them. The problem with that is I haven't seen any record of that. And to me, what's the point of doing that if you don't have a paper trail? Because what are your statistics? What are you saying is the numerator and the denominator of, of divergence? So that's one huge problem. Second problem is I'm assuming that somewhere along the way, he actually retested a multi-run sample. And so now my question is going to be, which is the result you're comparing it to? Are you comparing it with the last one, the second to last one, the first one? Um, are you even concerned that there were multiple runs? So it seems to me that, that there's sort of a collective fiction that was created both before the fact and then after the fact about what everyone was doing. And right. I'm, I'm having a hard time even unpacking which part, which is the part that we can believe up until, and then which is the part that we you know, take well, with a, a certain amount of skepticism. Some of the chemists said he was just doing a paper audit of stuff and never actually retested a sample like ever. So if you just, all you're doing is going through a lab packet to make sure something's filled out, uh, you know, that's not going to uncover cheating. But also, even if he was doing that, he should have realized that Dukin wasn't filling out essential lab paperwork. Right. Because that's what they found in 2011. I doubt that she started that in 2011, you know. So uh, possibly in 2008, Dukin would set many vials for GCMS on her desk, uncapped and unnumbered, 
Remember what we said in the last podcast about contamination. Uh, if you have uncapped vials on your desk, it's a one foot radius that can be contaminated by those uncapped vials. And if they're unnumbered, yeah, like <laughs> then oops, uh, you know, Joe Smith's um, non-drug uh, sample could be uh, uh, conflated with, um, you know, somebody else's uh, drug sample. And Dukin claimed that they were set in order and that she could subsequently affix the correct laboratory numbers to them. This would leave open the possibility of contamination and incorrectly labeling the vials. When, when Dukin's vials were submitted to the GCMS laboratory, however, they were always numbered. She, everything's like after the fact. Mm -hmm. uh, Dukin would set up many test tubes uh, on her bench when she was doing testing and these had to be extracted. Uh, she would not cover the test tubes and Peter Priero's practice was to, to work on one test tube at a time and cover the top of the test tube before moving to the next. All vials or tubes should have been individually steeled immediately after being prepared to prevent contamination. And then the investigator says in her own, uh, in her own, you know, talking in her own voice, I concur and underlines it. <laughs> Was there any investigation on contamination of samples? No. Michael Lawler was loudly vocal about Dukin having open test tubes. Peter Pirro was concerned at one point that Dukin had brought vials to the GCMS where the instrument findings were not matching the preliminary findings. The convention was, uh, was that the preliminary findings were to be written on the back of the control cards, but for these cases, Dukin had not written her results on the cards. <laughs> Pirro went to Slemmy, who went to Nazif and nothing happened. Uh, Salemi went so far as to ask Nasif to have Dukin supervised. This went nowhere with Nasif. So Nasif really, I mean, if you want to talk about bad actors, Nasif enabled this forever. The, unless these guys are full of shit, which is possible and they never went to her, she, has, she had many people coming to her according to these investigations and what they, what they said with concerns about her going back years and she just protected Dukin all along. And some of the chemists thought she effectively, effectively promoted Dukin, right? right? So like a lot of them were discouraged because you know after all this misconduct came to light, she was given the uh, job of writing the lab's standard operating procedures and a lot of them were resentful Right, because so, that's an easier, cushier gig than sitting down at your bench testing samples all day if you're just writing procedures, and the procedures are what govern the overall process, so you have to be a process expert. So by default, that is a promotion. Um, whether or not it was formalized or not is whatever, but I mean, think of the message that's sending. She breaks protocol. She basically tells Lisa Glazer, hey, give me these samples. Lisa Glazer says no. And then she goes in, forges her, and it goes in, takes the samples anyways, and basically is like, F you to the whole lab. Like, she, I can do whatever I want. Yeah, so it, it, oh, there's two types of discipline uh, in, uh, in uh, suspect organizations. One is actual discipline where you can tell that people are mad. Uh, and, and that discipline is, by the way, pretty quick and pretty effective because uh, you, you, you could be just uh, thrown into the bottom of a, of a dark well. Um, but then there's the other discipline, which is the, um, this, this hurts me more than it hurts you. 
uh, and the powers that be make me do this, but I don't really believe in it. Um, and that's where you, uh, it's, 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 it's not real discipline. And, and, and usually that means that whatever you allegedly did, the organization actually is in favor of. And so this is a big problem in law enforcement. When you have something ha that happened that shouldn't have happened, you can tell when the organization is not really upset at the member. Uh, and this is what seems to have happened here. Um, she was, uh, doesn't seem like she got yelled at, doesn't seem like she got written up, doesn't seem like she got a stern talking to. Um, she was allowed to do whatever she wants, basically, and tell right. people that it was a promotion. So that tells me everything I need to know about that lab. Right. Yeah, well, I mean, NASIF is primarily concerned with getting funding for the lab to operate. Like all of the chemists, maybe literally all of them, but if not that, the vast majority said she had no interest in drug analysis and forensic chemistry. She was only there as an administrator. So it, she's interested in getting funding. That translates to how many, what is the turnaround time for samples and how many samples can be processed. And if you got the highest producer in lab by far, um, you don't want to get rid of her if your only concern is turnaround time and funding. It's different if you're worried about is the chemistry uh, accurate? Are our protocols uh, you know, in line with what all the other labs in the country are doing, and are we doing right by the defendants in these cases? No one ever thinks about that last one, Chris. No, except for Dukin at the very. So we'll get to her interviews in a sec. But um, like Dukin is the only one who was interviewed by any of these people who ever even mentioned defendants, who ever even mentioned or thought of innocent people being sent to jail. She's the only one. And I've just found that like, how is that possible? But so anyway, so for, to, to your point about, you know, getting funding and stuff like that, I think to me, if you take what's going on in the lab and then read Dukin's emails to prosecutors and put those things together, you see that Dukin above all understood what this lab was all about. It was a conviction mill. She knew that. She knew that the job was to get these samples processed, no matter how, get the sheets done, get everything through and make sure these people went to jail because they're all scumbags as the DAs were telling her, you know, like she understood that Michael Lawler thought he was actually doing chemistry. Like Peter Pirro, I think thought that they were actually like scientific, you know, scientists and doing scientific processing. I think some of the people did that, but Dukin especially knew that what this lab was all about. But like even Lawler, who did his own like rogue investigation into Dukin, uh, you know, through the, the transcripts of these interviews, you find out uh, at a certain point in time, they realized his calculations for weight and trafficking samples were all off because there was something wrong with their spreadsheet. And then there's a question like, well, did anyone go back and notify the defendants in these cases or in his cases in particular? And the answer is no. Right. <laughs> right. So, I mean, like, even the guy who's, you know, would outwardly appear to be most, uh, you know, interested in making sure the chemistry is done correctly, still, uh, when they find major errors in his own cases, they don't reach out to defendants. <laughs> it, it's like that. It's like no one cared. 
And to me that, to, how is that possible? Because they were all convinced that everyone whose evidence was tested was guilty. You know, that's, that's the reality here is that these people were just convinced that every single drug case that came through this lab, the people were guilty as sin and that the, the testing was a formality. So, um, so again, what's the point of the lab? Why not just call them all guilty? You know, why are you wasting in, in these labs? You know, why waste hundreds of thousands of dollars? Anyways, let's, let's kick over to, um, let's kick over to Betsy O'Brien's interview with the state police. So, um, all right. So, uh, I need to find that. Hold on one second. But but to my to the other point that we were talking about with um, well, Dukin was also. But you know what? There there was another thing on, on that sheet. Dukin was also the trainer. They designated her as the trainer of new employees too. Did you guys had had you had a chance to see that? Were you aware of that that she was training new people coming into the lab? Well, I mean, like I've seen all sorts of interviews and basically everyone was involved and had a little hand in training new people coming in, even right. Dugan. Right. And basically the way she was training them, like everyone had a, cause obviously if she's not capping vials and if she's not doing stuff, she's basically showing them all the wrong ways to, to do processing. And yet none of those people like, they're like, Oh, Hey, you know, you were trained by a person who had no idea what they were doing. Like maybe we should look at your samples too. So wasn't Duke trained by Farak? What's that? Wasn't Duke trained by Farak? Uh, In part, I mean, look, she explained uh, to the attorney general's office that uh, whenever uh, Salemi wasn't around or one of the um, you know more senior chemists, she would shadow Farak, and um, you know that was an essential part of her training. That's right. a good so, team right there. <laughs> so, I mean, so, I mean it, it then makes sense why, you know, 10 years later, or I'm sorry, eight years later, they find that um, Dukin is, is not filling out her powder sheets. And we go back to see what Farrick was doing in 2003 and 2004. And most, if not all of those are missing as well. So yeah. Betsy O'Brien was employed at the lab for 21 years as a chemist and supervisor. Um, and when she was working in this chemist, the chemist asked the evidence, uh, the evidence technician or officer for samples, either by card or verbally. Uh, evidence technician officers uh, would notify her that the samples were ready and she would go sign them out. So that was the process, right? That she told investigators about. And that's the process that we've come to know as you, you know, what was violated by Dukin. And as we saw was violated by a number of other people in the lab, but for some reason they didn't care. She would bring evidence into a little room off the evidence room and she would check the samples to make sure that they were the right samples. Then she would fill out the evidence logbook. The samples were then brought to the chemist's work area where they were sorted. So that's the process. She was never told as a chemist to go retrieve her own samples from the evidence room, she said. She never saw another chemist 
retrieve their own samples from the safe, which I highly doubt. Do you guys believe that? I don't know. Um, and she, she, is, she has never heard talk of any chemist going into the safe and getting their own samples out. Don't we have an email of her saying that Salemi did that exact thing? Yeah, there's also, I think, um, some talk with Dan Rensikowski um, going into the evidence safe to get his own samples, I guess, or other people's samples uh, because he was taller or something like that and was able to reach up higher for different types of evidence samples or maybe they were more weighty, but he definitely tells them he would be in the evidence lot, like the, the safe itself from time to time, um, taking out evidence samples for people. Unbelievable. And, and, and there's also the issue of the keys, you know, the, the, um, the incomplete investigation of whose keys got into which rooms. Uh, and that, but we do know that a lot of people had access to that, uh, right. to that area, so. And so, um, Betsy O'Brien believes Annie Dukin didn't have the code to the safe and she is not sure if she had a key. She had both the code and a key. Chuck Salemi uh, would know how many people had a key to the safe when Dukin was employed at the lab. Uh, and, but again, Dukin did have that. Uh, so according to Betsy O'Brien, Dukin was a good worker and friendly. Dukin, had, Dukin did a lot of work. The day the, sa the samples were taken by Dukin and not properly logged out, Betsy O'Brien was not in. Uh, Betsy O'Brien never gave the code or key to the safe to Dukin. And uh, she stated that there are times the safe door is popped open when the evidence technician officers are in the room. Um, and she added that the safe door should be closed when the evidence officers are out of the room. And, and she did observe the safe door open with no evidence officer present in the past. <laughs> but that was only a handful of times going back to 2009, thank God. Right. And she said it was only because of human error and she would then close the door. <laughs> this is a real tight operation. And so as a chemist, she stated she worked with uh, Dukin in the same room. That was from that was up until 2008 or 2009, but she did not do a lot of samples in 2009 and added that she believed Dukin was a hard worker, focused, efficient, reliable, and technically strong. The kind of person, if you owned your business, you would want to hire her. <laughs> Dude. <laughs> right. Really? O'Brien believed that Dukin was a top-notch chemist. She worked side by side with Annie for four years from 2004 and 2008. Did anyone ever check Betsy O'Brien's samples for, for contamination? O'Brien never saw any shortcuts by Dukin. How is that possible? How is that possible? And then the investigators asked Betsy about dry labbing and she described dry labbing as looking at a sample, not testing it, and then saying what it is. How do all these chemists know what dry labbing is? Like if it's not like a, it's a, it's a known process, right? Is that what you guys get from this? Every one of them yeah. knows what it is. 
Right. It's not like the state police went in there when they're starting to investigate these people, knowing that term in advance. Right. They're just trying to figure out what Dukin did. And they all, you know, throw out this term. Yeah. And it's like, oh, dry lab. Like, that's not just something that's intuitive. Like, that's a term that's obviously created by these people. A term of art. Yeah. Right. right. And it's like, oh, yeah, they, they probably dry lab. And it's like, oh, what's with dry lab? Oh, when you don't actually because like, again, like. <laughs> I mean, what if you don't actually do your job? Yeah. <laughs> it's unbelievable. She never saw Duke in dry lab. She never saw anything wrong with Dukin's testing and her not using proper procedures, except for all of the times where she kept uncapped samples at her desk. You know, I mean, come on, give me a break. She never saw anything wrong with Dukin's testing, blah, blah, blah. According to Betsy O'Brien's observations, she saw the proper number of slides for the high number of bags. But of course she was not looking over Dukin's shoulders or looking at all. All right, that's the end of part one of this, uh, the third part episode of the Hinton Lab investigation. Uh, we will be back next week with part two of this episode. Um, thank you, as always, thank you for listening and we will talk to you next week.